Shalom, everyone from Jerusalem Lights. Thank you so much for being with us today. Today, we are bringing you greetings, saying shalom not only from Jerusalem and from Arkansas, as usual, where our James is situated, but also we are bringing you greetings all the way from Alaska. We have a very special guest in her home in Alaska today, Dr. Melanie, and she is um, going to share with us. She is a member of our Jerusalem Lights community. What can I say? She doesn't. She's very into like self-effacement. Um, she doesn't even want to, intro- to introduce her as doctor. But I insist. I can't. I can't say her name without saying doctor. She is Dr. Melanie, and she loves Hashem and the Torah. And uh, with, a, uh, with an amazing passion and zeal and dedication. And she's truly a righteous woman, an amazing, an amazing person. And to me, this is my introduction to, to my friend, Dr. Melanie. She is living proof that the God of Israel is alive and well in Alaska. Who knew? Who would have thought? So Dr. Melanie, on behalf of James from Arkansas and myself here in the Holy City, not that there's anything wrong with Arkansas, it's just not mentioned in the, in the Torah, neither is Alaska. <laughs> we welcome you, and so, so privileged and happy um, that you're able to join us today. So thank you and welcome. It is an honor and a privilege. I thank you. Thank you. <clears throat> so just to begin, um, I, am, I was born and raised in Brooklyn. And just to give every hello, everybody, first of all, hello, everybody. Um, And I just want to give everyone a sense of how I came to be here. I was born and raised in Brooklyn to immigrant parents. My parents are native to Panama, and they both immigrated here at different times. My mom came to America when she was 10, and my father came when he was 21, I think. So he came much later and um, they met, they got married, they had me. Um, Unfortunately, it didn't work out. And my mom raised me as a single parent in Brooklyn. And if anybody knows anything about Brooklyn in the late 80s and 90s, the level of violence and um, unease, unrest, Um, the birth of rap and hip hop and all of that, whatever that brought about, that's where I grew up. Um, I could say that it didn't shape me, but I definitely understand it. Um, Coming from immigrant parents, you're, you sort of straddle the fence, you live in two worlds. Um, You have values of your parents and their expectations for you. And then you are in this American experience. And it's uh, sort of a confusing message, because um, when your parents are interacting with you in the setting of their family and their home and their culture. They refer to you as um, a Yankee, basically. That's what I was told. I was a Yankee. You're an American. And then 
um, when my mother had to speak of me or conceptualize me in the context of the American culture, she's like, no, you're Panamanian, you're foreign, you're, you know, you're not like this and you're not like them. And so I was raised in a pretty strict household, although I would say that my mom always gave me a voice. Um, she always instilled in me that uh, um, my thoughts and my concerns mattered to her. And she gave me a voice. I wasn't allowed to speak it out in public, but behind closed doors, she always gave me a voice. She wanted me to remain a child and respectful in the whole seen and not heard thing that was um, part of my upbringing. Uh, I would say that my grandmother was very influential in my life. Um, she's the one that came to America first from Panama. She left her small children in Panama with my granddad, and she came to America to for a better life. And at the time, she spoke more Spanish than English, and she said it was very difficult. But within three years of coming here, she started as a line seamstress, and she worked her way up to sample maker in the garment district in Manhattan. Um, and she was just such a powerhouse in our family that we often joke amongst ourselves that out of her, out of the one person that she was, she had so many talents and it had to be dispersed amongst all of us. There would never be another person like my grandmother. Also, she was very, very, I would say, driven to instill in her children and her grandchildren a relationship with God, which was, I guess, difficult because um, I guess America and I guess the larger culture uh, has such a an influence on people. And it's very important to from the very beginning, create a household around Hashem. And my grandmother started off as a seven-day Adventist. And so from, I would say, from the earliest, maybe from seven, from the age of seven, I knew that the holy day, the day of observance was Saturday. So it was very confusing for me, though, because my mom had me in Catholic school. I went from Catholic school from second grade to eighth grade and public school throughout high school. And the reason why she put me in Catholic school is because she felt it was discipline and regimen and you know, values that were missing in the public school system. And so my first, I was a very, in school, because my mom gave me a voice, 
I was very outspoken in school. I wasn't rude or, or anything like that, but I, if, if ever there was a confusing issue, I brought it up to the priests, to the nuns. You know, every Wednesday they had a like a bazaar in the basement of the rectory. And I remember reading, we did read um, New Testament passages. And I was very confused about the passage where uh, Jesus is in the marketplace and he takes a stick to all the money changing tables and all of this that's taking place in the grounds of the temple. And I, you know, remember raising a question to them. I'm like, well, aren't we doing the same thing? You know, aren't, aren't we supposed to, you know, not buy and sell and have money, bizarre games and money changing in the house of, you know, worship? Um, that posed a lot of problems. Um, I also asked about um, the Ten Commandments. You know, when you read the Ten Commandments, I was very conscious of the graven images parts and like, aren't we, when we have the thorns of the crown and when we have the cross, like, what is that? Isn't that in opposition to what we're told? And I, I guess it, I was made to feel like if you have faith, you don't ask questions. And that always made me feel like I, I, I don't belong then because I felt where I, where I belong, I should be asking questions. And so that was Catholic school. Then I got to public school and public school was in Forest Hills, Queens, a very good school at the time. And, um, because my mom was a foreign mom, I uh, was on the, I, I took AP courses. I took, uh, I was uh, on the Regents tract at, at that time the Regents diplomas became um, voluntary. Before that, everybody had a Regents. For people that don't understand the Regents system, you had core math, core um, sciences, and at the end of each year, you had a standardized test. And that standardized test helped you promote to the next grade and went towards giving you this regent's diploma, which says that you performed above a certain level above the nation. And this diploma is not just a standard diploma, it's a regent's diploma, which um, if you took AP courses too, it gave you advanced placement in college, which I had for calculus and biology. And so by the time I got to college, I would say I was searching, searching. I, I wasn't really big on church 
because like I said, I, 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 there was so much that I didn't understand. And I think people are looking for a conversation. People are looking for answers and it's okay. If the people that you're talking to say, I don't really know, you know, maybe that's something that we should pray for, for answers to, or pray for a vision, but I've always been searching for answers and a conversation. And so through college, it was more of me finding who I am spiritually than anything else. Because I I would have to say that I was pretty much a good kid. Um, I, I didn't get my mom problems. I didn't have a wild side. I didn't um, test the boundaries. I was one of those kids that I was a lock, a latchkey kid, a lock, a lock and key kid from the age of seven. So my mom, you know, had to sit me down and tell me, you know, you don't open the door for anyone. You come home from school, you let yourself in, you don't use the stove. You just wait for me to come home. You do your homework. When I get home, I will check it. So I was that kid. I was very biddable and very much a, a, a follower of rules. And so I didn't give problems. I didn't really give problems. And so by the time I'm in college and I, I realize, okay, yeah, I'm going to get a bachelor's in biology and try to become a doctor I just felt like um I really needed to get in touch with Hashem and it didn't need to come by way of a church and the reason why I say this is because in my family dynamic I was the only child so my grandmother had three daughters and the my mom's oldest sister had three children my mom's youngest sister had two children and then there was me and i've always felt like this sort of outsider in my family simply because i never had a sibling and i could look at my mom and she would you know congregate with her siblings and my, even my grandmother had siblings and all of them had siblings, all my cousins. And I'm like this odd person out. And I was always felt like I was looking in from this observing observation vantage point. So it was hard for me to feel fully integrated. And I think for the, for the most part, that was me and not necessarily my family ostracizing me. So I've, I've has, I have this aspect to my personality that I'm this outsider and I'm observing and I'm searching. And at that time in college, I met up with uh, a colleague who was a member of a Baptist church, right? Oh, let me backtrack. So when my grandmother um, introduced me to Seventh-day Adventists, as a child, I went and I became baptized. And so I'm keeping Shabbat with her, but it's not really like I'm 
taking this day and observing this day, a day of rest. It wasn't like that. It was like, oh, read a couple of Bible passages and then you go outside and play, you know, but I knew the day of observance, the, the holy day was Saturday. So by the time I get to college and my colleague introduces me to, I said Baptist, didn't I? It was Pentecostal. The Pentecostal church, I go with her a couple of Sundays and I'm already conflicted because I'm like, but the day of worship is Saturday and I'm with them and I'm listening to them and they were encouraging me to get baptized, to get saved. And the notion of saved felt um, strange to me because I, I'm, you know, I, I had questions again. So I'm like, uh, you know, what about people that are good of heart and do good all their lives and don't get baptized? What happens to them? And I'm not saying all Pentecostal all Pentecostals believe this, but what was told to me from this church is that their souls are damned. You know, you, you have to accept, you know, Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You have to be baptized. It doesn't matter how good you are in life. And it doesn't matter if you, you know, believe in God, but if you've never been to church, your soul is, your soul is damned. That of course didn't sit well with me. And I remember I actually got disinvited <laughs> because when I went there, the pastor said to me, you're going to get the Holy Ghost. And I said to him, what do you mean? He said, you're going to get the Holy Ghost. You're going to speak in tongues. You're going to, you know, glory. You're going to glorify. And then my question to him was, how do you know that the spirit of God doesn't already reside in me? Why do I have to jump around and speak in tongues and fall out? You know, who's to say that that, that is how the spirit of Hashem or the Lord at the time will manifest in me? And I could see from him, he's just like, you know, maybe we're not for you. Maybe, maybe we're not for you. And so again, so I get disinvited. And at that time, I'm just, I said, you know, to myself, I said, you know, Lord, you're, I, I speak to you all the time. I speak to you. You're with me all the time. I don't really go about in life without talking to you, consulting you. So I'm just going to be a good person and hopefully I find my way to you through some type of religion or something. I just didn't know what it would be. And then when I get to medical school, my pod mates or my, my sweet mates, they are Jewish. And I joined the JSA, the Jewish Student Organization, the Jewish Student Association. And we had Passover. And I, I felt like 
wow, this is, I think this is really what I'm, where I'm supposed to be. And they would tease me and say, oh my goodness, you have so much Jewish tendencies. And I still felt like um, I was searching. I was still searching. And then once I got to residency, uh, after my first year in surgical residency, I was diagnosed with um, breast cancer. And I was, before that, I was a person who I planned everything down to the last detail. I got to hit all the marks and, you know, I'm, I'm going to complete my first year of surgical residency and then I'm going to go on and then I'm going to take fellowship and I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. And suddenly, you know, with this diagnosis, I was sort of like untethered. I didn't feel like I was part of the gears that turn the world. And I felt lost. And I can remember speaking to God, always talking to God, but I can remember speaking to God and saying, God, this is not true. This can't be true. Um, you know, me, I'm, I'm healthy. I'm, you know, nothing can stop me. I'm, you know, a force to be reckoned with. And, and I just felt this calming, soft answer within me, around me. I call it the universe. When the universe speaks to you, I feel like the universe is the cloak of Hashem. And when I say that the universe speaks to you, I mean Hashem. So, cause I'm going to say that a lot. And so I felt this calming voice, this soft voice saying, yes, this is real. And I, I'm just like, you know, it's like, I, I just don't understand. Like I, I, what's going to happen to me, you know? And I remember saying in the car, you know, Lord, I'm not going to ask you why, why me? Because I certainly didn't ask you why me when everything was going great, when I got into the school that I wanted to go to, when I got into the medical school that I wanted to go to, when my life is on the up. I don't ask why me. So I'm not going to ask why me here. What I am going to ask for is that you give me grace and peace to accept it and to go through it the way you would want me to, to get out of it what you would want me to. And that was an amazing moment of clarity for me. I didn't say that I, I'm not going to say that I stayed there the whole time because I vacillated through depression and and despair and, and uncertainty. And, and then I would have amazing periods of calm. And I can remember being on the operating table for 
first for the biopsy. And I, I mean, for, I, w- I will explain just because there may be someone out there who is experiencing the same thing or will experience the same thing. I felt a pea-sized mass on my sternum, and I happened to be rotating through a general surgery at that time. So when you, when you do a general surgery residency, you rotate through trauma, you rotate through thoracic surgery, you rotate through uh, vascular surgery, ped surgery, and general surgery is where you do breast surgery. So I'm doing breast surgery all this month and I'm, I feel this pea sized mass on my sternum and the attending surgeon that I happen to be working with, who happened to be a, a foremost expert in breast surgery at the time. Uh, I say to him, you know, I feel this, this mass on my sternum, you know, like, what do you, what do you think this is? And he's like, I'm going to send you for a uh, mammogram. You're too young. Usually it doesn't, at the time, mammograms in young women was really hard to discern any mass because you had a lot of fibrous tissue, young fibrous tissue. And so I go, I get this mammogram. It comes back as a BIRADS 4. And a BIRADS 4 is very concerning most likely cancer. BIRADS 5 is cancer. BIRADS 3 is indeterminate. BIRADS 4 is most likely cancer. And so I look at this thing and I'm just like, how could this be? So I come to him and I tell him about where I would like to have the incision because I don't want a scar because this can't be cancer. And he says to me, you know, I'm going to put the incision where you want it. But if this turns out to be cancer, I'm going to be very upset because that means that if the incision is not over the mass and it's a direct uh, path to take the, the mass or tissue from the mass for, biop- for a biopsy, if you go through a, a not, um, I would, it's not an indirect path and you take the sample or the tissue, once you drag it out, that whole tract is seeded. So now when you go back to actually remove the cancer, you have to do a a larger excision. And so that's what happened to me. And by that time, you know, he was upset with himself and, you know, he was doing it to accommodate me. And at this time, I felt like everybody wanted the best for me. These are people that were training me and now I'm a patient and it was like, they didn't really give me much of a voice. They knew that I was shell shocked. Right. And so they're like, no, 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 we're going to do this. And we're going to do that. And we're going to just, you know, just, just relax. We're going to take care of it all for you. And so I didn't really have any questions. I sort of turned my physician brain off and just was being led. So I had the initial biopsy, then I had the surgery, then I had chemo. 
And at that time, I didn't want to stop um, my training. And so at that time, I was on PEDS, PEDS surgery. And I was taking care of this particular little child who was three years old, who had an aggressive leukemia. And it happens. I could hear the, you know, the physicians talking and they were saying, yeah, you know, this poor kid probably doesn't really have more than three months. And I'm just thinking to myself, it just hit me at that time. I'm like, is anybody speaking like that about me? You know, all the while it didn't dawn on me that Hashem was preparing me to be a different type of physician than I would have been if I didn't have this experience. And by the time I get to my second round of chemo, my white cells had petered out. I had none. And I became at risk for infection. And so they put me on a leave of absence, a medical leave of absence. They were going to let me go as long as I want, as long as I could, but then they put me on a medical leave of absence. And so I went into radiation on the leave of absence. And at that time, I would have to say, by the time I was in radiation, I was really depressed. I, I felt like I it was still up in the air whether I was going to live or not. Um, I didn't think that I would ever complete residency training. Um, I just felt so despondent. And I remember sitting in radiation waiting for a treatment. You went to radiation five days a week and you had weekend breaks. And I remember sitting with a a woman, uh, her name is her name was Janice. I have to say her name, um, Janet, and she had breast cancer, a history of breast cancer, twenty years, and then it came back as a, a met to her brain. So she was getting radiation to her head, and so it made her head very, her, her whole face, everything beat red. She had these beautiful blue eyes and she wore these glasses that magnified her eyes. So her eyes were really huge and she was always so positive and so caring and loving and giving. And I, I just couldn't imagine how she was like this. I was mad, you know, me, I was angry at times. I was in despair at times. And she was sitting with me this particular day and she was saying, you know, well, what, what do you do? And I said, I was one of the surgical residents here. And she's like, oh my goodness, how, how great it is to, you know, to be able to care for people and be in that role of a healer. And I was like, that's not me anymore. You know, I, I'm, I don't think I'm going to finish this. I, I don't think I'll ever return to medicine again. And she's like, no, you have to. Like how many people in the world get to be able to take care of people? That's 
what God wants you to do. You know, she's speaking to me this way. And I'm just like, how God, you know, like, how are you speaking to me through her? Like, I'm angry. I, I, I feel like I'm losing time and, you know, all my colleagues are moving on, you know, ahead of me and I'm, I'm just in despair and no, I, I, I don't see myself coming back. Never forgot her. I complete my radiation treatment and I was still on like a two year break in my residency training. And so I returned to residency in 2007. And I had to do my first year over again. And at this point, I'm like, full steam ahead, right? And I, I'm able to connect with patients with a cancer diagnosis in a way that I wouldn't if I didn't have that history. And so I was very thankful in that sense that I had gone through that, that, that experience and that I, my life could be used as an example for people. I always said to my patients quite bluntly, you're not dying today. You know, you're, you still have life to live. There are still things that you should do, still things that you have to do. And so, yes, I know that despair sets in and you vacillate between despair and anger and, and not knowing and uncertainty, but you're not dying today. And so as long as you're not dying today, there's a God to thank. There is, you know, a sunrise to witness, uh, a sunset to witness. You could still see a funny movie. You could still hear a funny joke and laugh to you, you know until you fall out and there's still so much life to live. And I don't think I would have had that perspective if I didn't go through what I went through. And I, I always asked God in that, that moment, please, please don't let me lose this perspective, lose my human side in surgery because surgery is like a high pressure training you're you're working long hours i was in residency before the 80 hour work week mandate the 80 hour work week mandate was instituted when i was a fourth year and so you would work more than 120 hours in a week and you were often sleep deprived and it was a situation that was trying to train you to think critically even when you're tired with limited amount of information to make the best decision that you could make to first save the patient's life then to control and limit whatever the the disease entity was and then ultimately to have a successful recovery for your patient and so that they can return to their lives and i when you're in it sometimes you just get bogged down in the tedium of you know patient after patient and you know long surgery cases 
you're tired, you're beat down. So I can't say that I was always my most compassionate. And there was one particular time that I felt that, you know, I felt like God just put a hand on my chest and told me, you have to stop, you know, you, you have to stop. You have to look with the eyes that I gave you, look at what you're doing with the eyes that I gave you, because there was some politics. And that's all I'm going to say politics within the residency team. And um, I, I guess when you're dealing with human beings, you have to negotiate different personalities and there's power struggles and power plays. And so residency is no different. And so I felt that I was being unfairly targeted in my residency group. And I was being um, kept out of the OR as a punitive uh, move. And so I was given like what we called scut work. And it's a shame that we call it that because there's a human being on the other end of that, but it was called scut work. And I am doing scut work. I'm called to drain a pleural effusion for a patient that had malignant lung cancer. And so pleural effusion is when you have a buildup of fluid in the lining of the lung and the chest wall. So if this space fills up, then the lung gets squeezed and it's hard for this person to breathe. And that shouldn't be considered scut work, but I'm going to be honest. And that's what we called it. And I was angry that I had to do this because I was a third year. I felt I had earned the right that I shouldn't, this should, this should be an intern level or a second year. And I could just feel God, God's displeasure with me being that way, because it's like, no, there is no scut work and you are not too big for anything. And if there is a human being on the other end of it, it should be your honor and your privilege to care for this person, to relieve something for this person. And so in this, in this particular interaction, I was angry. And so I wasn't, I wasn't, I don't think I was outwardly rude to this patient, but I wasn't speaking much. I came, I explained to her what I was going to do. And she understood because our team was doing it every day anyway. And I was doing this every day for her, but I, this, this particular time I wasn't, um, engaging in pleasantries. I was just all business. And she said to me, at the time, my name was Brown. She said to me, Dr. Brown, why did you become a doctor? And when she said that to me, and when she asked that of me, I just broke the dam broke. I realized that I wasn't in the right spirit. I realized that I was disappointing Hashem. I realized I wasn't taking 
my life experiences to be a better human, to be a better doctor, to be a better person. And when she said that to me, I pulled up a chair and I sat next to her and I explained to her my journey, my cancer journey. I listened to her fears. I listened to her concerns. I, we made jokes. We laughed. You know, I made her day that day. And after that, I made it my business. It didn't matter what team I was on. It didn't matter if I was no longer rotating there. I made it my business to go to her and drain her, her malignant pleural effusion. And I was off one week and then I came in Monday, very happy because I was thinking of jokes that I could tell her to make her laugh and her bed was empty. And she had passed and I was just furious with myself that I, 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 I was not conscious that maybe I wasn't always the most compassionate, most caring, most giving person. And I know doctors are human and doctors have, you know, home life and you have other areas of your life that may be giving you stress, but it is really a special, um, a special calling in life to be a physician and especially a surgeon where someone trusts you to put knife to their skin to remove something or make a new connection in something so that they can live. And so after that, I had totally changed my perspective and I would pray. Um, I always prayed, but this time I brought it to the hospital. I brought it to the patients. I would pray in the OR. I would um, talk about God with patients. I would listen to them, you know, and I would, I have to be honest and say, even though I had this experience, I, I still would slip back into get it done, do this, get it done, get it done. But because I had this experience, I was more conscious of when I was becoming like that. And then I graduated, I, I met my husband in 2009. and. We got married my last, my, we got married 16 days before I graduated and from general surgery and went on to become, um, went on to study liver pancreas surgery. And that's, that was my fellowship. And um, I got married. 15 days, 16 days later, I was on a plane and I was on the West Coast and my husband, new husband, was still in New Jersey. And um, he's a, he was in neurosurgery uh, residency. And now we're apart and I am still searching. 
I, I feel, you know, spiritually connected, but I wanted something more structured. And, and if I thought general surgery was a high pressure experience, liver pancreas surgery fellowship was uh, 10 times that. And so it's more, you know, get it done, long cases. Um, you know, I could remember being in one case that went 21 hours. And um, instead of feeling exhausted, you felt invigorated. It was like, you know, this is great. I, you know, I'm learning so much. And I can remember uh, thinking to myself, my goodness, are you going to have children? You know, are you, are you going to, are you going to try to arrange your life so that you could have kids if you can still have them, you know? So I started going to a reproductive medicine and I found out that the chemotherapy put me in premature ovarian failure. And, you know, I started thinking about trying to harvest my eggs or trying to go the IVF route. And then I remember saying to myself, yeah, but I, I want to make a name for myself in liver surgery. I, I want a procedure named after me or something like that. And again, I could just feel, you know, God saying to me, no, that, that is not, that is not how I made you. And you're wanting something that is not going to be good for you. And by the time I'm in my second year of liver pancreas surgery, my husband matched in, in, in a neurosurgery program in Seattle. And by the end of that year, they offer him a chief position in neurosurgery here in Alaska. And he tells them, my wife is a diehard East Coast person. She will never accept this. And I just felt like God was saying, no, you go there, go there. You need to go there. And I always say that was my lek laka moment. And I told him, I said, no, we, we need to go. We need to go. It sounds crazy. Everybody's going to think we're crazy, but we need to go. Let's go. And this, this is our adventure. This is going to be our life. And so we get there. And while we're making the arrangements to go and I'm graduating from liver pancreas surgery fellowship, and I'm doing some general surgery cases on my own, under my own license, um, they, they tell me the hospital where my husband works says to me, you know, we really don't have a position for you. And I was like, okay, but I can try and get a position on my own. Usually when a, a surgeon is being placed, if, the, if, if they are married to another surgeon or another physician, they try to get a position for that spouse to make the transition easier, to make leaving easier. And so relocating easier. And so they, they told me point blank, there is no position for you. And 
I was just like, yeah, well, I, I can find my own way. I'll make my own way. And there was no liver pancreas surgery uh, department here. Uh, most of the liver cases was do, being done by a trauma surgeon. And it, they were like, yeah, we don't even have any general surgery positions. And I was like, oh, I guess, okay, I'll take a break. I'll take a year off. And then a year turned into two. And then they were like, oh, all we have is general surgery. And I'm like, well, I didn't do two years of liver pancreas to just do general surgery. I don't want that. I want liver pancreas surgery. And then I said, you know, okay, I guess I'm retired. I retired. And then I said, so what do I do with myself? And I would tell anybody out there, I was not groomed to be a homemaker, to be a wife, but I think by the grace of God, the Lord paired me with my husband who, my husband, who is very patient. And I learned to be the wife that I am on the job. Um, I, I, I think in today's society, it was a mistake for women to want to compete in male spaces and come out of the home, not to say that you can't work, but come out of the home, leave the home devoid of any type of spiritual grounding, any type of, of, I, 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 the heart of the home. Then I believe that the mother is the heart of the home. And I certainly didn't have that because my mother was a working mom. She was a nurse. Um, and you know, my grandmother worked to very long in her, in her years. And I got that sense of homemaker from my mother's older sister because she was a stay at home mom. And I felt that her children were so lucky to have her home. She was there to make lunch for them. And, you know, be there with them to hear their concerns when they get out of school to listen to their experiences for the day. I didn't have that. I was a, a latchkey kid. And so when I got here, I, I started, I would say my, my journey in earnest to Hashem began in 20 at the end of 2017. And I started looking for explanations about Bible passages, started, I don't know why I was led to Judaism, but I was. And I found the Temple Institute and where I saw all of the recordings of the explanations or, or this, the, I, I don't, I, it's hard for me to put into words what rabbi does when he gives you a spiritual insight into the parshas, but I found it very informative. And I kept, what I would do is each parsha that would come up, I would load 
the most recent recording and the year before that, and the year before that, and the year before that, just to hear it over and over and over again. I found kabad.org and they are a wealth of information. And I also just kept listening to different rabbis, 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 rabbis. And I remember hearing there's a, a, a fairly prominent rabbi and he's giving a talk to Jewish uh, kids. I think he was in a yeshiva and they asked him about the other nations. What about the other nations? Since we're chosen, you know, what about these other nations? And his explanation was when the new world comes, new Jerusalem comes, we're going to be the bridal party and all the other nations are going to be the spectators cheering us on. And I can remember being like, I bristled at that. And I was like, Lord, why, why do I have to be a spectator on the side? Like, why, why am I, why am I penalized simply because I was not born into a Jewish home? You know, I love you. I want to follow in all your ways. I want to keep all your commandments at the time. You know, I'm just thinking commandments. I'm just like, you know, why, why is it that way? And I had a very skewed perspective perception of what chosen meant. And I think to a large extent, most of the world does. And I'm bristling at this. I, I, why, why, you know, am I not chosen? Why, why can't I, why can't I also be part of the bridal party? And I'm sitting there and I'm learning to pray. I found the um, kabad.org has a Kehot uh, publication and they have an app of a Sador that's interlinear and you have the English and you have the Hebrew on one side and I'm trying to learn Hebrew and I'm doing chakras and I'm doing Minka and I'm doing uh, Marev and I'm trying to sink into the practice of of being um, an observant Jew, even though I'm not Jewish. Um, I find the beauty in it. I find the precious uh, uh, gem that you that the Jewish people have. And I remember sitting, meditating in prayer, and I'm just bristling, and I'm just like, why can't I be? part of the chosen. And I feel again, the universe, the soft, quiet voice say to me, can you, can you not support someone? Can you, can you support someone? Can you be happy for someone? Can you work towards the betterment or someone, someone accomplishing a mission? Can you build a house that you're not going to live in? And I'm like, yeah. I can build a house that I don't live in. I can give of myself to help someone achieve a goal that 
would not directly benefit me. Can you? Yes, I can do that. And so once I released that, I began to see uh, different uh, YouTube episodes dealing with what it meant to be chosen. And I remember one day saying, you know what, God, I'm not chosen. I am, I'm not Jewish. I, I, I want to be a proselyte. I would be a sojourner in the camp. It's the one law for the one people. But since I'm not Jewish, I want to do everything I can to help them in what their mission is, whatever way I can support monetarily. I, I just kept ruminating with this theme of making bread. I want to make bread and bread, making bread isn't just making the, the, the challah, it's producing and doing something holy so that God's message, so that God's will, so that people return to God. And so I, I just became very aware that being chosen, it's not a burden, but it's a very sobering thing. It's praying for the world. It's um, living, being a living example of God's law of, uh, of exemplifying God's relationship with man. And, and I just feel like if the whole world can get on board and support the Jewish people in that, I, I, the world would be such a better place, but it's not. And the world is what we've made of it, a mess of it. And it's up to us to rectify it. And rectification takes prayer and coming to God and supporting the Jewish people. And so that's what I do. And I remember, I think I did my first real Passover in 2019. And I didn't hunt through to get all the Hamets out the way I, I did in 2020 and 21 and every year since I, I make sure that I put everything in a shed and, you know, I sell that the shed, the kabad.org allows you to do that, sell the shed to some, someone who's non-Jewish. And so it's not in your possession. It's not in your borders. It just became very important to me to keep halakha as much as possible and not to be chosen, but to be holy so that I can support the Jewish people and understand and be a bridge to them. And that's where I am right now. Wow. Questions. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
I see that Shem has basically been talking to you your whole life from the time that you were a little mm-hmm. girl, and you've been talking to him. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Um, I just have one question, and, and then I'm sure Jim, Jim has a question too. My question is, so how is it to be a Torah-observant non-Jew in Alaska? Specifically, aren't there times <laughs> of year when Shabbat is over like <laughs> 3 o'clock in the morning or something? Yes, so... So when July and August get here, Shabbat doesn't end until 2 a.m. Wow. And I remember crying my eyes out because I know you're not supposed to use electronics during Shabbat, but with the there's a certain app that I have and it tells you when Shabbat is over and when Ma'ariv comes because I felt like I couldn't do Habdalah because you you Shabbat would end and then Ma'ariv would be there. And then I'd be like, oh my gosh, I didn't get the chance to do Habdalah and what happens. And and I remember speaking to, to you, Rabbi, about it. And you said, no, once you do Ma'ariv and in that portion of Ma'ariv where you say, you know, Lord, you have endowed us with the ability to know your Torah. You have taught us you know, you've made a distinction between light and darkness, between Israel and the nations, between this the Shabbat day and the seven work work the six week work days. He was like, no, you did it. That that you did that then. And so I I I'm trying to observe as much as possible. I've been studying Malakha, which is the laws of 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 studying of observing Shabbat the proper way. And I've been studying Halakha. I've been reading Kofetz Kayim, the laws of Lashon Hara. I've been, I have a social vision uh, by the Lubavitcher. It's about the Lubavitcher, Rabbi Schneerson. So I'm starting to read that. And I just feel like our, our understanding of the role of of Jewish people is not clearly understood and even within the Jewish community the Israelites right it, it, so we're not all chosen we're not all the firstborn but we are God's creation and even within the Israelites right Aharon and his line will minister. It doesn't mean that God doesn't love all the other Israelites. It's just that Aharon and his line is chosen to minister to God on behalf of all the Israelites and the world at large. And we, everybody wasn't chosen to carry the ark and the ta- you know, the, the table for the showbread and carry the, the, the altar it didn't mean that God doesn't love all, all the all the other Israelites. And, you know, there are passages in the, the Torah that I say to myself, I wonder how, how the Israelites felt about this at the time when this was being conveyed. Like when God commands in Leviticus, you know, if it's a, a person that's lamed or maimed or missing a leg or he shall not come to 
give his offering. And I'm like, but that doesn't mean that God doesn't love that person. You know, it, there is a reason. I don't know why, but it, I realized that in that, in that moment, it must have taken a tremendous amount of humility to say, okay, I'm, I'm not to go near and give the offering, but God still loves me. God created me. It's just for some reason, I'm not supposed to go. And so that's how I look at it. I'm not the chosen person or I'm not the firstborn, but I am a creation of God and I can support someone in an effort to rectify the world, to bring about healing, tikkun olam. I can, I can conscript all my talents and all, all the resources that God gave me to help bring that about. And I don't need the glory and I don't need the shine. And that's another thing that I didn't really touch on that as I became a homemaker, I became so far from my image of myself wanting to make a name for myself and wanting to, to have a procedure named after me. Now I, I, during my prayers, I, ask God to help me hollow out myself, to diminish myself, to hollow out myself so that I make room for Hashem to tabernacle within me, to be a worthy vessel, to carry the light, to, to help anyone who comes near me. You know, I, I just remember there are times where I get stopped um, by homeless people here and sometimes they don't want anything. They just ask you to pray over them. And I'm just like, Hashem, this is you speaking to me, you know, wanting the prayer to get out there into the world. I do believe, as Rabbi says, that the world runs on prayer. And maybe there is an extra prayer that needs to be said. One of my favorite to say is the Amida. And the Amida is such a beautiful prayer. And I feel like anybody listening to my voice, if you get your hands on the Amida or the Shimon Ray, it's the most complete, the most beautiful communication to God and for the world. It's, it is. Shema is the mitzvah and the blessing of Shema. You say the blessing of the Shema, but the Amida gets me every time I end up crying through it. Most of the time, the words are so beautiful, so poignant, so moving. I just, I'm right where I need to be. I'm spiritually where I need to be, mentally where I need to be, physically where I need to be, where my name isn't known where I'm not making a name for myself, where I'm in the background supporting, happy to support, privileged to support, and very blessed, very blessed. Like you said, you know, I, I think that people uh, mis totally misunderstand the concept of chosen and, and what the responsibility really means. But in the meantime, the main thing that you are bringing out for everybody that's listening is that Hashem has a relationship of the, with every single person and values the contribution of every, every single, single person. person. And your relationship with Hashem is so vibrant and dynamic 
and amazing. And your humility is frankly uh, embarrassing because like, who could be as humble as you? You're like amazing. But you know what? I oh. think that, how do you know that Hashem is not naming a procedure after you right now? But the procedure, <laughs> maybe it's not a liver pancreas operation. Maybe the procedure that Hashem is naming after you for everybody that's listening is the procedure of tshuva. A procedure of knowing who he is, a procedure, a procedure of constantly growing personally as a person of, of, of getting closer to him and, and your level of honesty with yourself and your introspection and your, and your self-awareness is so incredibly inspiring in your walk with Hashem. Who knew that, 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 that somebody is like you in Alaska? It's just amazing. So I'm I'm just beside myself with excitement because and you're also always on the first page of all of our Zoom classes, and I know how much you love Torah and how much you study with it such is. tremendous fervor and enthusiasm. So I'm I'm, I'm a lover I'm, of Torah. It, that's so amazing, Jim. You've been very quiet. Ask away, please. Why should I? Why should I interrupt this beautiful narrative? My goodness, I you know I have. <laughs> A quick comment, and then and then I want to follow that up with a question, Melanie. And that sure. is, is that I had to I had to bite my tongue when you were talking about growing up as a Catholic, because I grew up as a Catholic and I experienced everything that you did. <laughs> I was like, my God, I'm you're holding up a mirror, and I, I you know I even even down to the. Uh, when we'd, we'd have the harvest uh, fairs at the church. Mm -hmm, and I was thinking mm -hmm. like, I don't know, something doesn't quite ring true here, <laughs> right. you know. Mm -hmm. And and uh, and I would, see the, I would see the Monsignor who would come and visit, and he'd be over there with a glass of whiskey and a big cigar. And, cigarette, I mean, not that there's any, cigarette. You know, I mean, not that there's anything wrong with a glass of whiskey. I have, uh, have them from time to time. But, you know, as an impressionable kid, yeah. you know. Mm -hmm. uh, anyway, so I really related a lot to that because I, I had a lot of the same questions. My, uh, the question I have for you is, um, and I, I have to also repeat what the rabbi has said, is that uh, this uh, journey of yours is so inspiring and that, that you, uh, you've uh, faced everything with such humility that it's, it's an example, really, for, for a lot of us. What, what kind of community, uh, obviously you have an online community that you, you uh, access. Do you have a local, uh, do you have a rabbi? Do you have other friends who are Noahides? Or, uh... so, so there is a Jewish, the Jewish campus here, and it's the Kabad house here. And I was privileged to meet the rabbi here. He has a Wednesday class um, that sort of, touches on the Parsha it, and um, I've been invited to to um, partake in the the synagogue um, experience there uh, they have Jews and non-Jews there at the synagogue on Shabbat and the problem for me is that I don't drive the Friday, you know, Friday evening, no electronics, no anything. But what's really auspicious is that they have a hotel right across the street. It's like a resident inn. And so I was like, oh my gosh. So all I have to do is go there on Fridays and be able to not break Shabbat or, 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 
to me, desecrate the Shabbat by driving or, you know, by something like that, doing something like that. And you just walk right across the street and go to the synagogue. But um, there are so many resources out there. There is um, uh, a Zare, uh, I think it's Zare Zadik. And they are, they're just, they have the camera in the synagogue. And if you've never been to a synagogue and you never had a synagogue experience, that's it. I think they're based out of Toronto, I think. And oh my goodness, it's it's a beautiful thing. Uh, I I basically had the their feed on throughout the entire time of Sukkot. And you you, you were able to participate in chakras, you know, minkas and and mariv and the service and sing the songs and it was like I wasn't by myself here. I, I also wanted to I wanted to follow up um, I, just to be clear because I'm confused, and at my age I get easily confused. So give me a break. So anyway, so you you are not a you're not a convert. You're you're still you're still a non you're you're. A I'm still a non Jew. I'm, yeah. I'm still a non Jew. Um, so I had broached the subject of conversion. And I spoke to the rabbi um, for Kabad House, the, the Kabad.org. Um, and he basically said to me, you know, the marriage is sacred, especially if you believe you prayed for your husband, you prayed and God sent you your husband. And if you convert and your husband doesn't convert, because my husband is not into it, that's another thing that I forgot to mention. Um, so I totally understand people who are on a journey to get closer to Hashem and your spouse isn't doing that. And um, the rabbi's advice to me was it's almost like breaking up a marriage. And that's what he told me. And so I tell my husband all the time, if given the opportunity, I will convert. If I go to Jerusalem, I probably won't come back. And we laugh about it. But he knows there, there's a part of my spirit that is serious. Um, I, I do feel that one day I will convert. But I was also told by the same rabbi that I... I present like a unique bridge to people who are non-Jew but want to observe and the Jew who is observant. So yeah. if that's like where to, I'm supposed to be right now. Yeah. I, I'm I'm gonna really step out of bounds here because I, I wanna I wanna give you some advice and I, I want you to check with your rabbi. You know, Hashem would not be offended if you drove to the synagogue on Shabbat. You do know that, don't you? No. You, you not, you're not, as a non-Jew, you, in fact, in fact, the, the Chazal tell us that, in fact, my, all the rabbis I've known my whole life, uh, including Rabbi Richmond, have told me that, uh, that it's, we should actually do something, a non-Jew should actually do something that sort of, uh, uh, is not complete observance of Shabbat, and and uh, in fact, what do you think is going to happen when we have that time in the future where, you know, someone in in Eretz Israel has to keep 
the wheels turning so that everybody can have the lights lights on later and basically you you know there I, when i've been in israel i've been i think an honor to be a shabbos goy have you ever heard that phrase you know for instance i i had a, my first my first shabbat in israel i was staying at a at a, a an observant community and my next door neighbor came over and and asked me how i was doing and i said i'm enjoying i'm enjoying shabbat out here you know in the community and 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 he sort of like waited for me to ask him how he was doing. And I said, well, oh, well, how are things at your house? And he said, it's a wonderful Shabbat. Everything's fine. He said, so I said, everything is okay. And he said, well, you know, I said, is there something that I can help you with? Because I knew I could as a non-Jew. So he, the black, the black under his, his water heater that, you know, warmed up the meals and all that had gone out. And I said, oh, uh, can I come over and you can, can I light, light it? it? Can I? And he said, yeah. if you'd like to. If you, I said, no, I want to. And so I hope I'm not stepping out of bounds, but I want you to know that you, that, that you have that allowance, you know, as, as a non-Jew. And it's a kind of a help. It's an aid to, to um, Israel, to the people of Israel from time to time. So, let me, let me anyway, say this. I, let me say this about that. Um, I think that Dr. Melanie knows that she doesn't have to do everything that she's doing. First of all, if only all the Jews would be as scrupulous as you are, that would be quite inspiring for the Jewish people that are listening to know that they should be wanting to keep Shabbat as, as much as you do. Now, it's true that you're not obligated. You know you're not obligated to. And uh, it is true also that you that you should, you know, make some sort of a distinction and, sh and, and show that it, you're not keeping a perfect halakhic Shabbat since you're not Jewish, but you don't because you can't possibly, because you can't know every nuance of everything that is required. But I also, I also um, respect the fact that you want to honor the Shabbat. In other words, you're not obligated to go to the hotel, you're not obligated not to drive, but this is something that resonates with you and you feel that this is what you want to do to show Hashem honor. But you know that it's it's not commanded. It's something that you're taking upon yourself, and that's that. You know, different strokes. That's how that's how it um, resonates with you, and that's how you feel comfortable yeah. with it. So, but but Jim is absolutely yeah. right. Jim is right. But that you know, there are there are people that uh, you know want to want to go further like that. It's all up to like the every every person's um, inclination. You know what's what's best for them. In any event. The fact is, your relationship with Hashem is blossoming, and it is um, deepening all all the while. I have a question. I have a question. So, those of us, when you read um, the passages in the in, in the parshas that in, uh, I think it's Leviticus. When do you? What do you consider the righteous proselyte? What do you consider that person? How, how do you become that person? And in it says the one law, one God, right. one Torah for the native born, the Jew, and for the righteous proselyte. So that's referring because to this, the status, okay. the Ger Toshav. That's referring to a, 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 a status. Convert. 
Well, it's it is a, a person who takes upon themselves like the the um, the yoke of the commandments of the seven mitzvot and to live in the land of Israel and as, you know uh, expresses allegiance to the one God of Israel and that basically re, you know accepts Hashem's responsibility as a non-Jew. That's the, that's the ger toshav, the, the proselyte, and then there's the ger tzedek, who is the person who actually converts to become a Jew as well, and then there there is the person who is reaching out to Hashem as you are. As a Noahide, and and uh, going as far as you you can go, as far as you makes you feel comfortable. So and and I and I'd like to add, uh, Melanie, that I, I hope that you don't think that because I decided to you know pass along that advice that does not diminish my admiration for you because you've you are. Really, I don't think that at all. No, I, I, I know don't you think don't, that but at all. I, I, maybe maybe I just want the listeners to know that because I have I have tr- tremendously been moved by your 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 story and uh, and it's uh, you know I, I I need to become more like you <laughs> in your your uh, your um, you you brought me to tears at one point and uh, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I, no, no, those are good tears. They were they were, but you you are certainly an inspiration. And and uh, I I just want to tell you that uh, you uh, you've really brought a light to the show today. Oh, thank you. Thank I want you. to thank you so much for being with us. It's it's absolutely amazing. <laughs> and um, gosh, it's it's just um, compelling to hear you reflect on all the revelations that Hashem has shown on you all throughout the years and and your personal. Uphill journey. So thank you so much. We love you over the moon and <laughs> are so happy that you were able to share with all of our audience. So thank you so much. What's your final thank message you so to much. all our listeners? What's your what's your what's um, my final message to all of our listeners? I my message to everyone is that we it's very hard to try and diminish yourself but it becomes a lot easier i don't believe someone who is looking for a connection with with hashem finds comfort in the way our society is today the whole me culture the the way we have perverted every single thing that god has given us the way our uh, young people are enticed to give way to their desires and we're trying to replace God with our own our own gods. It's this That's week's Torah portion. I, I, it's the it's the golden calf. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. The, the golden cap, basically. That's what we're doing. We're we're setting up our own rules, and we're we're and we we just um, covered this in Isaiah. We're saying evil is good, and we're 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 subjugating God, and we're putting ourselves in front of God, and it becomes very easy to diminish yourself if you are at odds with all that, and when you diminish yourself. You make room for God to come to, to reside within you. And there is so much more. Whatever you plan for yourself, God's plan is infinitely more 
than you could ever imagine for you. And all you have to do is make room for Hashem. Amen. And once you do, I mean, it's just, I, I had, I remember saying as a child, you know, I just want to be in a position to always have. And I just remember God asking me, well, you're going to have for what? What, what are you going to have for? What is the reason why you want to have? Is it just to have? Because where are you going to put it? So where are you going to put it all once you have it all? So I had to change my perspective again. No, I want to have so that I can give. And I, I am a very big giver. I, I'm blessed in that sense that I can give. And I'm always looking for opportunities to give because I feel that if you, if you have a giving spirit, Hashem will fill your hands with more to give. You will have more oil than you know what to do with. I just want to say, you know, you, you earlier you were thinking about maybe if a procedure would be named after you. I just want to say, <laughs> I, th I think that Hashem has been speaking to all of our listeners through you. Hashem is like shining on your face. And, and I know you are a person that is so close to Hashem. And, and I mean that with all my heart. And so here's the procedure that Hashem is using this broadcast to reach so many people that will be inspired by your story. So thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you for showing us the Melanie procedure. <laughs> the, Melody, <laughs> the doctor, the doctor Melanie procedure. Right. Thank you so much. Shalom, everyone. Thank you so much. Shalom, shalom. Shalom, shalom. shalom.